Hello, hello, and welcome to series three of the Brave podcast. The Brave is an exploration of resilience, survival and change in the 21st century. We essentially want to understand what's the future heading our way and how can we be adaptable and robust in this age of constant change and upheaval. Now, for Series 3, there's going to be a little bit of a shift. So if you're not familiar with the podcast format before, we often did interviews with guests or I would speak on a topic and... The topics would be pretty large, wide ranging. Um, They would be maybe not as tightly thematic as they should be. And I think the feedback was that while there were nuggets of wonderful information and there were some really great insights, it was often kind of unclear what the episode would be about exactly. And it was hard to kind of find which one you wanted to listen to, especially when the names were quite generic. So I've listened to that. And moving forwards with the podcast, every episode is really going to be about a particular topic and we're going to still get kind of experts in to speak about that I will input where is relevant and appropriate as well and we'll continue on from there and hopefully it should just be a much tighter listening experience from you and it should be much clearer what you're going to get out of that episode so to kick off the first episode of season three we're going to be focusing on a sector which has undergone arguably one of the biggest changes in the pandemic and that's retail the shift online, the change in consumer behaviour, habits, spending, also the fact that physical locations have not been able to operate for months on end in the UK and on a wider global scale means that retail is really facing, I think, an existential crisis of what does it mean to be a retailer or a store or a shop in the 21st century and what is going to happen next? You know, Are we going to see a return to in-store? Is online just going to be the future? Is Amazon going to eat everything and there's going to be no more independence? So to chat about this, I thought I would get a real expert in the room, well, virtually speaking. And I spoke to Christy, who is a former CEO of Booze, which is a very large kind of supermarket chain here in the north of England. He's also worked in luxury food and drink for Harrods as well and he's had that real premium experience and there's no better person to talk to about the future of retail because he's also set up during the pandemic his own startup which he's looking more at an online model so he's really got you know that in-store and online perspective but I'll let Chris kind of give his bio in a little bit more depth and we'll take the episode away I hope you really enjoy it. So I'm Christy I'm um, basically a shopkeeper um, I've spent most of my career um, running shops, different sorts of shops, mainly food and drink. Um, spent a long time working uh, for a business called Booths, which is a supermarket chain in the north of England. Um, uh, spent 22 years there, ended up being chief exec. Um, and uh, that was very focused on 30 supermarkets, um, mainly uh a lot of emphasis on things like um, sourcing from local small suppliers um, and an interesting place to be being one of the smallest chains of supermarkets in in the country up against some obviously very impressive uh, competitors. Um, I then spent a bit of time working with uh, small scale-up startup food brands um, and a little bit of advisory work for some bigger food brands as well. And then I um, landed the plum job in food retail, which was to be the food and home director at Harrods. Um, which is a little corner shop in Knightsbridge. Just a small thing. Yeah, and uh, that was uh, an incredible experience. Spent two and a half years there um, and uh, finished sort of as we reopened the store after the first lockdown. Um, 
and then wanted to really dedicate myself to something that I wanted to do for a very long time, which is to set up my own um, business, an online business, which is um, basically a, a platform or a marketplace for um, whiskey collectors to be able to buy and sell bottles of whiskey with each other. So it's called MaltDAC, and it's going to be the stock exchange for whiskey. So an interesting departure, but still in that sort of food and drink arena. Definitely. And that's quite a journey from leading kind of an existing brand to having your own startup. How have you found that? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I started life as a bit of an entrepreneur anyway. So I had a a small chain of shops when I was in my early 20s, um, which meant I'm used to doing everything myself. I kind of, you know, I can be quite self-sufficient and I certainly had to do absolutely everything myself since beginning. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, I think the biggest transition is the, is the one between physical retail and, and being online. So obviously we, I'm sure we can touch on, on some of that now, but it's, it's just a, a different mindset. I, I quite enjoy being entrepreneurial. I definitely enjoy being um, working for myself rather than for somebody else. And I've enjoyed the experience so far. I'm sure there's lots of um, twists and turns in the tale to come. Yes, and the online to physical and the differences between that, I think this is a very kind of apt time to be talking about all of that because obviously in March, the bottom dropped out of the retail market. ONS reports it was an 18% contraction there and it's very much looking like online is the future of retail. And But coming from your background, do you think physical stores have a future or, or are you going to putting all of your eggs into the online basket? Well, I mean, look, I, I, I personally am, but that doesn't mean that, that physical stores don't have a future. And I think that, that it's almost a false dichotomy, this, this notion of, of, of physical versus online. Um, one, one great example, in fact, during lockdown, I was talking to someone, um, one of the, my jobs at Harrods was looking after technology and we were talking to Apple. We were the biggest Apple store that isn't an actual Apple store. Um, so um, what Apple talked to me about was how well they had done during lockdown, basically. They'd, they they'd maintained their sales despite having every single one of their global stores closed. So it's like it just did. So, so basically people, consumers just migrated online to buy their, their phones and their tablets and um, their expectation was, as they reopened their stores, that they'd migrate back. And I think there's a massive amount of fluidity now between what you do online and what you don't. And it really depends on the category. It depends on the brand. It depends on the mission. It depends what mood you're in. Um, you know, it, 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 I, th- I, think, I think it isn't all about saying, right, actually, I shop online or I sh- shop in stores. I think there's, a, there's, there's different things that you have to almost consider one is, is this whole notion of where you research versus where you transact. Um, and I think there's a lot of um, categories where it makes loads of sense to research online, but then transact in store where you might want to physically feel the product, try the product on, whatever it is. Um, and, and likewise, there are some categories where actually you want to research in store, but you want to transact online because you want to actually then just do a whole big com- price comparison piece and make sure you buy it as cheaply as possible. So I think that is one, one area that, that people are quite fluid about and, and, and it's category specific. I think also that um, there's this notion of what you're doing is functional versus kind of a bit more leisurely. And um, there's definitely elements of retail, which is a, you know, is a day out and is a trip, is, a, is, is leisure, it's enjoyable, it's, it's, it, and, and, and physical stores give you that. And there are definitely, 
you know, more functional things, you know, and interestingly, grocery is obviously boomed online during during lockdown for obvious reasons, but but also boomed in stores. But but you know, clearly shopping for grocery is is broadly functional. It's not seen by many people as a leisure activity. But but, you know, again, category by category, I think I think people people are different and and, and it isn't binary. It's not that you do one or the other. You 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 happily jump between the two. And then finally the other thing which again is really interesting is around those things that you plan to buy versus those things that you buy on impulse. And I think there are plenty of categories where impulse really only works in a physical environment. It's hard to do impulse online. Um, you know, Amazon is driven by a search engine much, much more than it's driven by a, a, a browsing mechanism. People typically search for something, go to it, buy it. You know, they might get stimulated into buying something that, you know, people who bought this also bought that sort of stuff but actually you know whereas actually walking into waterstones you're far more, far more likely to buy a book that you didn't intend to buy so i think i think all those dimensions just mix it all up and it's never going to be you do you know that high street's dead physical shops are dead online's the future i just I just don't see it like that yeah that's a really interesting point of view and i guess kind of what i counter it with is the fact that even before the pandemic we were talking about the future of the high street and it seemed that even the experiential pull of it was not as great as it once was so do, do you think there were things the high street was getting wrong before all of this kicked off yeah i mean i i mean I, look i've i've worked for harrods so i'm gonna i'm gonna say that i understand experiential retailing and I get what you have to do to sort of pull it off and you know Harrods is magical it just creates the most extraordinary experiences you know and to be fair within Harrods the food halls are super magical so there's there's you know but the amount of effort that goes in to create that so my 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 take would be that actually the high street doesn't do experiential very well and you know those retailers that struggle are the ones who actually have quite dull environments create quite dull merchandising and 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 think they think about experience but actually they think about service and I think service broadly has got better over the years but I still think that that in principle we're just not very good at it so I do think there's a lot to be learned on the high street about how to make that how to make a customer journey so much more visceral so much more engaging, you know, and that's a combination of product, people and environment, you know, and the mm. amount of attention that gets paid within an environment like Harrods. And look, it's a, it's a super luxury environment, lots of money to spend on it. It, it. It's different. I accept that, you know, but at the same time, you can drive a positive experience through people, which does not have to be an, ex, an, an expensive exercise. Yeah, because what kind of came to my mind then was uh, Primark and uh, JD Sports, <laughs> the quintessential awful retail environments. No one wants to be in there, yet they still seem to be the type of stores that persist. And do you think that's more kind of driven by price and, I guess, demand for their products or brand name? Or Yeah, I mean, I think Primark is. And again, I think there's, a, there's something about browsing at, in, a, in a discount clothing environment, you know, and again... <laughs> In my world, in you know, Aldi and Little are are are, are good examples of of actually well executed environments where actually the curation of product is really really clever, 
you know, it's a very, very tightly controlled range, and yet it somehow manages to tick all the boxes, you know. And I think I think that's really quite quite um, a difficult uh, challenge to pull off. I think when you're talking about some of the fashion outlets, it is driven by price. It is driven by that notion that you can commoditize something and that experience doesn't matter. You know, I also Aldi. Aldi, by the way, has a have a really high NPS and Net Promoter Score within the supermarket world, and it's because everyone's expectations are so low. <laughs> that when they actually get a smile at the checkout and actually, you know, the fact that people, that, that the stuff goes through so quickly means that the queues move really quickly. That means that you don't queue for very long and it's a very efficient way of processing the, 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 the checkout experience, which for a lot of people would say, well, that's not very, that's not a great experience, but actually it is a great experience if what you want to do is get out quickly. And most people do. So there are dimensions to this, which aren't obvious and overt, like it doesn't have to be this sort of special place and actually setting expectations low and delivering a little bit higher can, can drive quite positive customer responses. But I, just going back to the main point, though, pre-COVID, absolutely, there were, there were problems in the high street and there are, there are structural fundamental issues around where people shop, how they want to shop, which I do think well, you know, have been accelerated massively by, by, by lockdowns. Mm. And then thinking of kind of, I guess, how the pandemic has changed retail from your perspective, what what are the big trends you've seen there or the big shifts or changes? Yeah, I mean, obvious, obvious one. So offline to online, which which we've talked about. Um, working from home versus going to work, I think, is an interesting one because I think it drives a couple of, of, of interesting things. First of all, obviously what it's done is it's it's kind of had a big impact on city centres. So location strategy for, for retail going forwards is going to have to change. City centres aren't necessarily going to have the footfall that they had. You know, and, and, and I was in London yesterday and, you know, it is, it is nothing compared with what it was. And, you know, this is December, this is prime sort of Christmas shopping period. And it's clearly very quiet. Um, and I think that also the, the the travel retail dimensions as well. So, you know, railway shops, airport shops, where you get your lunch, all those sorts of elements of retail are, are, are going to change. And, and they're fundamentally structurally going to change. I don't think it's going to come back massively. I think equally, what's really interesting is those retailers who are now a bit more suburban in their focus and neighbourhood focused, um, and I think there are huge opportunities within neighbourhoods to bring back elements of retail that were potentially, potentially gone missing in the, in the past. And I think that suburban stores will you know, have, done, have done okay and presumably will, will do better. And then if you contrast that, so working from home versus working, going, going to work, but then staying at home versus going out, which is obviously also having an impact. So that's driving um, purchases from an online point of view, but also just the nature of being in your home all the time. You know, one of the things I saw when I went back to Harris was just a boom in home as a category and, you know, in furniture and homewares, you know, our interior design business, you know, suddenly went through the, the roof because people basically were planning and plotting projects whilst they were in lockdown. And I think that you know, when, you, when you live in an environment and you're, you're there so much longer, it does drive a different demand. So, so again, there are category winners, category losers. It, it's changing. I suppose my bigger point is that I think it has accelerated changes and those changes are likely to stick. So, you know, the online offline piece is definitely, you know, it's, 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 it's dragged us about seven or eight years 
towards where we probably would have been anyway, but it's it's all happened in seven or eight months. Yeah, definitely. The store that's really benefited from me working from home is my local community shop. I've worked in York City Centre before and a lot of the businesses there, you go along the high street and they're all shutting down at the moment, which is a shame. But if most people are going to be working from home, which I think probably is the future, they need to adapt. It's not, we're not coming back. <laughs> yeah. And I think what's interesting is if you look at the, you know, what, what's driven independence to be neighbourhood and, and chains to be in city centres is, is rent. And the rebalancing of that rent is going to be interesting. So does it mean the chains start to look at neighbourhoods and, and, and suburbs as being a much more attractive place to, because the, the footfall's there, but, but, you know, but the rent typically isn't high enough for them, you know, isn't, isn't what they would expect. And likewise, for independence, does that actually mean actually maybe there are some rent, rental opportunities in city centres going forwards that they would never have considered in the past? And York's a, York's a really interesting example of obviously a, a real mixture of, of, of independence and, and chain stores, national stores. Um, and it will just be fascinating to see how that rebalances over, over time. Yeah, definitely. Because I think there's also pressures on kind of spend per head almost, whereby a lot of people in lockdown, because economically they've had to, or they just haven't had the opportunity to spend money, they're spending less on discretionary goods. And is that going to come back? Are people going to suddenly want to buy, you know, luxury goods again, or, you know, high priced items? And it depends. Depends whether you kept your job, didn't keep your job. If you kept your job, you're no longer spending it on commuting. Maybe you've got actually more discretionary income than you had in the past. You know, if you didn't keep your job, clearly that that's not going to be the case. So I think I think again, it will that that that, that will play out differently for different people. I think definitely. And I'm a marketeer by trade, so I'm always interested in the question of is something better because it's a better product or you're providing a better customer experience and from your kind of perspective retailers at the moment if they're looking to kind of rebuild custom or reposition themselves in a market should they be focusing more on their products and making better products or the customer experience definitely both i think range curation so in a physical it's really interesting and in a physical world you have constraints that mean you have to create your range to, to fit the physical space that you've got and that actually, I think, is quite healthy at times because it forces you to think carefully about what your customer missions are and what your, what your customer really wants. And it, and it forces you to make choices on behalf of customers. And, you know, the real skill in retailing is actually not to make it all the customer's choice, but to make it a choice on their behalf, you know, to get it to the, to the point where they're, they're choosing, but they're, you know, they want choice, but they don't want infinite choice necessarily particularly in that sort of browsing mission that we talked about i think product development is incredibly important and i always has been but actually newness and and innovation will continue to be a driving force and you know whichever category you're in and i've come up you know food and drinks innovative but also you know what what was fascinating working at harris was working alongside all the fashion um, uh, people in the business and just how driven they are by by change and, and the sort of seasonal fashion changes and everything that, that goes on in that world. You know, there's a huge amount of innovation that, that takes place um, constantly. The, the experiential side has to be just as important because, it, yeah, and I, and I would make a claim here, even online, how can you make the experience appropriately interesting and engaging 
you know, you, we still don't see many video, much video content online for, for within retail. It's mostly photographic and, and, and text. You know, I don't think we've really managed to fully exploit. We, we started looking at VR and other elements of technology, which I think all could, could really make a big difference online to how people shop. But just going back to what I mentioned earlier, just standards of execution in general, service and, you know, getting people... The, the big piece around services is having a team of, of colleagues who absolutely understand why they're there and what it's all about and understand the proposition and are able to communicate it, but also sort of live it through values. And I think that, again, is missing in so many environments. And, and what is it that an independent retailer brings, which is, is that absolute ownership of their, their business and their understanding. And therefore, actually, what you get is a different experience because you're talking to people who... Uh, you know, really believe in it. And I think that's what's often missing in a, in a chain store situation. Yeah, that's a really interesting point of view. And I wonder if we are going to see a shift to independence and they'll reclaim a lot of ground again because people are kind of sick of the experiences they had before and are no longer willing to tolerate it and no longer have to tolerate it either. And in terms of your shift within your career, because I'm really interested in this idea of going from, you know, a wide range of experience in physical locations to suddenly delivering an online proposition. What has been the hardest part about that for you? Um, well, first of all, I'm not launched yet, so it's just about <laughs> building it at the moment. And, and what's interesting, again, you know, building an online business, and for me, I'm building a marketplace, so it's not like I can go and just take a Shopify site and, and sort of build it off, off, off the shelf, as it were. So I'm building it from scratch, working, working with a third party to do it. But it's extraordinary. I mean, I lo- what, what's really interesting is what appeals to me about retail is the speed of change. In retail in general, you can make a decision on Monday, you can make it, typically you can execute it on, on Wednesday, and by Friday you could have either decided to put it back to what it was or you keep it going. And that sort of ability to move relatively quickly and get stuff done is great. What's amazing about online is just how much faster that is. So actually, you know, it's a decision at nine o'clock in the morning and by 11, it's executing by 12, you've got rid of it again because it's not quite right or you've, or you've tweaked it. And that, that constant sort of iterative change that you can make that, you know, to get that elusive product market fit, um, which all startups are, are sort of pursuing, is it, it, online lets you do it. And, and, you know, and I think then towards some of the people I work with on the food manufacturing side, it's really hard work launching a product and getting it right. I like working with pixels and software probably more than I do with with, with the shelves and, and shop fittings. So in a way it's kind of been, it's quite a nice thing to, to, to get involved with. And, and I'm a bit of a perfectionist. I want it to be, a, you know, I want it to look amazing. I want it to be incredibly functional and simple to use you know, and take away all the friction and, and, and people intuitively know what to do with it. So it's it sort of appeals to me in, in, in a way. I also love the idea of, of the flexibility it offers me in terms of where I then work. I can do my job wherever I am. So, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And it's also flexibility for your customers as well. That's what I love is you can have a global audience very quickly if you play your cards right and your marketing's good and your, your proposition's good and all, and all of that. And I think... Have, I guess, have you dug much into kind of data yet or anything to do with that, done user testing? No. So, we, well, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a sort of pilot site, which is like a feeder site almost called Malt Release Radar, which is all about new releases of whiskey and is sort of partly not editorial as such, but is all about spotting those releases and alerting 
to, to those releases as they happen. And um, there's some really interesting data that's come through there just in terms of the profile of customers, what yeah. they're interested in, what they visit, what they don't visit, you know, the, the whole sort of analytics piece. So I am getting into that, but I think far more interesting once the stock exchange is built is actually the way people buy and clearly the price changes and all the things that are sort of matter to that to that market so no it's it's going to be it's going to be fascinating definitely i even think the qualitative stuff is always really interesting you know like who are the people who are browsing you know what other sites are they interested in are they interested in certain experiences can you replicate that can you give them anchors they know uh, but that's just my world the world of online I, I love it so um yeah it's really exciting and i guess the kind of the, the spectre in the room, the elephant in the room, if I can say, is Amazon in the world of online. Anyone who's building an online retail business, um, you will say, OK, how is Amazon going to eat your market share? You know, how are you going to compete there if they decide to do what you do? And I guess what advice would you give to retailers or entrepreneurs such as yourself starting out in terms of how they compete with Amazon and these big aggregators of the market? So, so there's a few things, really. Um, first of all, I'd say it might be worth thinking about not competing, but actually cooperating. So, you know, Fulfilled by Amazon and Amazon Marketplace are both um, very, very interesting spaces. What they bring you is, is, is eyeballs and, and, you know, virtual footfall. And clearly at a cost, fair enough. But, you know, it would be interesting to see what that cost would be to get the same level of, of, of potential uh, trade for, you know, in a physical environment or, or online on your own. So I think to a certain extent, you've got to see them as be, being a channel rather than a, a competitor. And I know that always feels like you're potentially feeding the hand that bites you, as it were. So, you, you, you know, tread carefully. But I, I don't think if I, if I was starting out with an e-commerce business that I would ignore them um, because I think they can, they can, they can potentially support you. Um, and even if it's not in the retail sense, definitely in terms of the, the the server and the sort of the back end. I think though, equally, if you look at in history in the history of retail, look at multi-category, all things to all people retailers, and in the end, they always come a little bit unstuck because what happens is that the, the verticals within their business they can never give the focus and attention to that that they would like and smaller, more focused, more agile, um, better um, businesses compete and still share. And I just mm. think you have to see Amazon for what it is, which is it's, a, it's, it's, it's robotic, um, literally robotic. Um, it's, it's very, very focused on um, certain things, you know, and, 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 and scale of inventory and choice is, is one of those things. You know, it, what it doesn't do is curate very well and what it doesn't do is give an editorial voice and, and, and give opinion other than, other than its customers' opinions. And I think, you know, there are, there are gaps within that and, and areas that I would definitely pursue, you know, and I think there are all sorts of opportunities to, to literally compete with Amazon and, and steal share. Yeah, in the software world, we are liken it to kind of bundling and unbundling. That's what you're seeing at the moment. You're seeing aggregators. So marketplaces, great play at the moment. Everyone's trying to aggregate. And then some people are trying to strip, strip down and go into that real niche. And that seems to be happening across almost every industry. So it's really interesting to think about Amazon within that context, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's not going to go away. It's, you know, and I'm, I'm a massive Jeff Bezos fan, so I'm not going to... I think <laughs> the man is a genius... 
I think he I think he saw so you know, he saw into the future in a way that nobody else did, and he continues to do so. But that doesn't mean that it's that it's not possible to to compete with it. Mm. And then I guess that leads me on really nicely to my final question for you. And it's kind of we've asked a flavour of this, but you know, if you're a retailer, especially a physical retailer at the moment, and you're looking to survive, you know, you're really wondering about the future. What advice would you give to people in that situation? So I'll go back. I'll go back to Jeff Bezos. One, one, one piece of advice Jeff Bezos gives is is think about the things that never change. So you know, actually, for him, will people always want choice? Yes. Will they ever want less choice? His view is no. Will they all want, always want cheap prices? Yes. Will they ever want more expensive prices? No. Will they always want something delivered quickly? Yes. So those things are never going to change. So his view is, therefore, you you optimise to, to those three three things. I think if you think about quality and you think about service and experience, again, who's going to actually argue against them being better? You know, and Boots was a great example of a business which had, from 1847, had built its reputation on high quality service and high quality products, and they're sort of. They're just, they're just permanent. And whether that's through small grocer's shops, you know, on the high street, or whether that's through supermarkets, or whether it's through click and collect, or whether it's through an online business in that, you know, that it, it, the channels and the structure and the way you do this, the how will change, the what probably doesn't. And it's like, actually, just keep focused on the what, make sure that you are selling high quality products, you know, delivering experience, personal service, or really good self-service, by the way. I'm a big fan of IKEA. You know, it's actually, there are environments where self-service is, is superb and that makes just as good an offer. Self-service is, is the predominant service method on, online. So you've got to find ways of making those things work, but ultimately people do want good service. And those are the things I would focus on. And I just think that if you do that, you know, whether that be through physical environment, through online or a combination of the two, um, there's no reason why you can't continue to succeed. The other, the other thing which I think is fascinating for me, I'm now a, a player in a secondary market. So, you know, retail is, 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 is notionally a primary market. And I think there are some interesting plays as to when people want to then sell to each other, how do you enable that and how do you sit within that world? And how do you encourage trade, even if you're not buying the stock putting it somewhere and then trying to sell it, which is a sort of traditional retail approach. What do you do? You know, a bit like Amazon Marketplace, Amazon happily compete with their own sellers. And, you know, they've created a marketplace because they know that's what their customers want. So you have the option of buying from different marketplace sellers on the same platform. So that whole notional platform in a secondary market, not don't just think about the primary market is, is also my advice. No, I, I really love that. Keep thing, it's almost like keeping things simple, like focus on your fundamentals and the rest will follow. No, that's really great. Thank you so much for your time, Chris. And if we wanted to find out more about this marketplace, I have to say I'm intrigued. Where would, where would we discover it? For now, there's a website called maltreleaseradar.com. Um, there will be in the future a um, business called maltvac.com. Excellent. And for anyone listening, I'll include all of that in the show notes so you can grab the links and head to there directly. But thank you so much for your time, Chris. No problem. Thank you. 
Thanks so much to Chris for coming on the show. I found that fascinating. I hope you did too. If you want to find out more about the podcast, we are on the usual social channels at The Brave Listen on Twitter and Instagram. We're also kind of on Facebook, but let's face it, Facebook is kind of dying a death. That perhaps could be a topic of a podcast episode coming up. We'll see. And you can also find us online, our ACAST website. If you search on ACAST, The Brave Podcast, that's where all of our our information is. And if you want to find out a little bit more about me, um, I blog, I write on various different topics around this kind of general theme and also marketing as well because that's my day job. I'm Beth and Vincent on all social platforms and my website is bethandvincent.com. But until next time, hope you stay safe, hope you stay sane and we will speak again in the future. Bye.